0: James Kandasami
1: Hey, audience and listeners, this is James Kandasamy from Achieve Wealth Through Value at Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, I have James Eng from Old Capital, and we're going to go deep into the financing aspects of uh, commercial real estate, specifically on uh, apartment complexes. And uh, James says, over 15 years, I've underwritten more than a billion dollar in assets, um, and he yeah, have worked with you know, uh, a lot of investors, a lot of active investors. And I believe he invests passively as well. Hey James, uh, say hi to our audience and listeners.
2: Hey James, uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Uh, love your first name. So let's let's get it going. <laughs>
1: <laughs> of course, we love that first name, right? So, so why not you tell about uh, you know how did you end up to become uh, you know a director uh, at the uh, Old Capital and how what was your journey you know since you know. Since you started in uh, real estate and uh, you know financing,
2: yeah. So, um, so I was born and raised in Houston, went to school in Austin, where you're you're at um, yeah. at ET, and then I came out of school, worked at G Capital for ten years, and one of those roles at G Capital, I was in commercial real estate, and I was a loan underwriter. And so, as a loan underwriter, I looked at uh, the balance sheets of all these commercial real estate operators, and saw that these guys made a ton more than. Uh, attorneys and dentists and doctors. And I said, man, I really need to start figuring out how to invest in, in real estate. And, uh, you know, I was at GE during sort of the great financial crisis and the only property types that we did not take back in terms of foreclosure were apartments and self-storage. And so I was I was like, I need to figure out how to invest in these two things. And apartments just were easier for me to understand and easier for me to get into. And so everywhere I went to every Dallas meetup in 2014, all I saw was Paul Peebles and Old Capital and Michael Becker everywhere. And so I said, I need to figure out how to to work with these guys. And in 2015, uh, Blackstone came in and bought um, GE's entire real estate portfolio of about $40 billion. And so I found myself uh, without anywhere to go in February of 2015, because Blackstone said, we don't need any of you guys. And so I went um, and worked at Old Capital and essentially sat in the car with Paul Peebles for six months, driving around looking at class B and C properties. And from there, really learned the business. And since then, have done close to a billion dollars in multifamily loans um, over the last five or six years, invested in close to 30 projects um, throughout Dallas, Austin, and San Antonio on the multifamily side. And so um, have been... I would say somewhat of an expert um, or built somewhat of an expert uh, following around multifamily financing and investing.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I started in 2015 and I used to do a lot of business with old capital and I, I know you came like after a few years from there, right? So, um, So that's good, good that uh, I think you joined a really good team over there in Dallas. And uh, so what did you, I mean, so first of all, GE Capital, right? Because I've heard GE Capital in a different, different places. What what they were doing previously and as a loan underwriter, how much was that volume is multifamily?
2: Yeah, so I mean, we did bridge loans and CMBS loans. So bridge loans are sort of three to five year um, sort of fixing a property, so heavy value add. And then the CMBS loans were the stabilized loans. And so we probably only did probably 10 to 15% um, in multifamily because uh, Fannie and Freddie were so aggressive in the space. Whereas in office, industrial, retail, uh, self-storage, there's no Fannie and Freddie. So you don't really have as many non-recourse options. And so a lot of people do bridge loans in that space. And so I did a lot of um, those different asset types. And when I did multifamily, I loved it. And so it was always a little bit easier to underwrite a little bit more conservative. And we usually were doing deals out of lease up. So there were new construction deals out of lease up, and then we might put a bridge on it or we did student housing deals. So we did a lot more student housing deals on the bridge side than conventional multifamily.
1: Awesome. Awesome. So that's re- you give me a really good segue because I really want to go into the mindset of a loan underwriter because I've talked to a lot of uh, you know active investors on how do they underwrite how, how kind of sniff tests do they do so from a loan underwriter I mean even right, right now you're underwriting loan as well right um, so what do you look for when you when you when uh, somebody gave you hey, James I want to uh, can you underwrite this deal for me can I want to get a loan right what what are the sniff tests do you do before you know you throw it away say that it doesn't work And how do you take it to the next level? Say that, okay, this might be a really good deal that I can finance or our company would be interested in financing it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it always starts with the underwritten NOI, right? So you're starting with sort of your basic T3, T6, T12 on the income side. And then on the expenses, you're really underwriting to the pro forma of the borrower and then probably T12 on utilities. And so once you do that, that's sort of your base set Um, you know, the advantage I have now is that I've seen enough multifamily deals in Texas that you can pretty much underwrite a deal in five minutes and get to sort of what that deal can size to on um, just sort of your in-place NOI. That's number one. And so if you're doing a stabilized deal, like a Fannie or Freddie deal, that's that underwritten NOI is what everybody hangs their hat on. Um, If you're doing a bridge loan or Um, some sort of heavy value add, then the more important thing is, all right, what are you going to take the NOI to? And how are you going to grow the rents? And so understanding the rent comps, understanding what rehab you need to do, that's what the underwriter starts spending their time on. And that's at the property level, right? So I like to think of, you've got to underwrite the sponsor, and then you've got to underwrite the property. And so to me, it always starts at the property level because a lot of these loans are non recourse. And so if you don't like the property, then you're not going to do the loan. Um, and then, but once you get over to the bridge side, you really start underwriting more of the sponsor and have they done this before? And I think that's probably where most people get into the most trouble is they don't have a track record. And so they have to start partnering with other people to build up that experience. And then once they have the experience, it's like, uh, Uh, It's like a golden star, I guess, on your chest. And as as soon as you have the experience, then you can um, pretty much buy anything. And so that's one of the unique things about multifamily is that you have to sort of um, partner with other people to build your experience. And once you have it, then um, you can utilize it on pretty much any other property going forward.
1: Yeah, interesting. So I want to go a bit more detail on the NOI of a deal, right? Because you know, usually the lenders... uh, you know, in my experience, I mean, yeah, they look at T twelve, T six, but T three. I mean, T three is basically the last three months. T three means T is current T, and then minus three is three months. So, T so three can be manipulated by a lot of sellers, right? Because you know, just before selling, you know, past next three years, they can put all kind of really bad residents, qualified residents, and you know, they can push up the NOI, right? So does the lenders really care at all at all? Or they just look at the numbers because, you know, my experience is, you know, they just look at T3 If T3 is good. We're going to give to the max um, lending capacity of that T3, right? Of the NOI or at least on the income side, right?
2: Yeah. So, so what um, Fannie and Freddie have started doing sort of post COVID is really digging in to collections. So it's not just what you're putting on your income statement, what's actually being collected in cash, right? So some lenders are digging in, hard, like Fannie and Freddie won't necessarily ask for bank statements, but they could, right? So bank statements from the seller showing the collections for the last three months. Uh, We've seen some deals where that's popped up. Uh, We've also seen not only just the income statement, they've asked for accounts receivable, and they want to see a delinquency report on these deals, because, um, you know, on, let's say, an accrual basis, uh, everything looks great, right? But then when you find out that you know, you have $20,000 in bad debt that's going to be written off um, after you close, then it doesn't look as great, right? So I think every buyer in today's market sort of has to build that in a little bit. Like even though you might be 90, 95%, after you close, there's probably going to be some cleaning of the residency out and you're probably going to drop to 85% in the first couple months um, as you go through the rent roll and walk all the units.
1: Oh, so you're saying nowadays, uh, Fannie and Freddie are looking at, I mean, I, mean I think it depends on the deal and depends on the sponsor, maybe they're looking at a bit more detail, I guess, right, just to make sure that.
2: Yeah, on collections,
1: for sure. Collections. Okay, interesting. Okay. And um, what about, so basically, you know, this, I mean, so collections will be the true numbers, right? You can't really run away from that other than whatever reported on the financial statements, right? So, so coming back to, you know, your experience, because you started in 2015, you have seen Dallas has grown. Like, you know, I, th- I, I know you, I think you do nationwide, but you know, you have done a lot more deals in Dallas. Um, so what have you seen in terms of the demographic shift of the active investors? I mean, I think there's a lot of, uh, uh, well, I mean, why not you answer that question? What do you see in terms of the, the mindset and the, who's coming into the game, into the syndication game nowadays, right? For the past, what, six to seven years, because you know, there's a lot of change could have happened in the past six or seven years. There's a lot of new players. So what have you seen?
2: I think the people who came in in 2015, they're still in, this, in the game and they're still buying deals. Um, the people who sort of left the market, I would say, are the guys who came in super early. So super early was like 2010, 11, 12, and they were buying deals for like 10,000 a unit. Those guys find it very difficult to buy a deal at a hundred a unit, I know, <laughs> um, but the people, the syndicators that I started working with, let's say in 2014, 2015, um, you know, they bought deals at 30 to 40,000 a unit, and then they moved up and they bought deals at 70 a unit now a hundred a unit um, on sort of B minus C deals in Dallas. Um, they're still here and they're still buying deals. And, you know, obviously the rents have improved, um, you know, I would say some people have moved up in class, right? So instead of buying a 1960s or 1970s property, they're buying a 2000 or 2010 property right now uh, because it's really just a function of how much equity you can raise. So if you can go out and raise 10, 15, $20 million, then you can go buy a class A deal in Dallas right now. And your cap rate is not gonna be that much different than a B or C deal. And so a lot of people are just moving up in class, uh, whereas the people who are just starting, they're buying the B and C deals.
1: Oh, interesting, so you're saying that just because there's not much differenti- differentiation factor in the cap rate between classes right now in Dallas, and you know, it just may, maybe makes sense more to buy just buy class A, right? Because you'd probably if you raise can, more- If you can raise the
2: money, right? Yeah. Because class A deals, let's say it's 200 a door, and you wanna buy a 250 unit deal, then all of a sudden you're raising $20 million. And so most people who are just starting can't raise that much money. So the people typically buy a BC deal, they can raise, let's say $5 million, or they, they, they partner with a couple of guys, they raise $5 million, they get a $15 million deal done. And that was back in 2015, 2016. Now they have a track record, they sold that deal. Now they're moving up to the $30 million or $40 million deal. Got it. Got it. Got
1: it. Don't you think the prices, I mean, of course, when you look at price per door, everything sounds crazy, right? Because, you know, um, when I started, I used to buy like 35, you know, 40, 50 a door kind of thing. But now it's all like, you know, 80, to 120, 150. I mean, if you come to Austin, it's just so crazy over here. I'm I'm sure even in Dallas is getting crazy. I mean, um, do you think people can still do deals with all that price for doors?
2: I think it's all relative, right? So in February of, um, 2000, let's say pre-COVID, right? Uh, You know, my savings account was giving me like, let's say a thousand a month. It went to like $10 a month.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. It was (laughs) 0.1%.
2: Yeah, it went literally to zero. And so for people who have cash on the sidelines right now and you're saying, I get it. I can't give you 10% cash on cash on a multifamily value add deal right now but I can give you six or five compared to 0.01%. That is phenomenal. 2000 <laughs> X. I don't know what the yeah. number is. Yeah. Um, and the, the amount of, and these are deals that, you know, we're raising money. We're getting 10 year, either fixed rate or floating rate debt. Uh, our debt is essentially set. We have a business plan to go in, you know, do 5,000 a door in rehab. We're going to raise rents 50 to $75. And it's BNC or A minus deals where the whole time during COVID, during lockdowns, we're at 95% collections. And you have a diversified income stream across 200 tenants. I mean, most people are still agreeing with that. I think the, the concept or what's probably harder for people right now raising equity is just like, is this the right time? Right? Is this the right time? You know, everyone's getting vaccinated. Everyone, they're still rolling everything out. Is this the right time to jump in? Um, and so I, I mean, in 2015, everyone thought that was the top when I started. And so I, ju- I just said, look, I'm going to invest in a deal a quarter, essentially. And that's what I've done the last five years, six years. And I don't know when the top is, but I just find good operators, uh, good located properties and invest over time. Got
1: it, got it. So I'm not sure. I mean, how much do you know about, you know, Austin, San Antonio, Houston? I mean, I know you're in Dallas pretty well. So, I mean, do you, do you want to go deep into that market? I'm sure Old Capital is a huge group, right? I mean, I'm sure. Yeah,
2: you I, mean, old, I, old mean, I mean, what, what I've seen and um, like I put together just a snapshot because a lot of people coming from outside of Texas are like, so what's the difference in the four major markets? And I would say in size, Dallas and Houston by far are uh, twice the size of Austin, Mm -hmm. San Antonio. And so a lot of times just with headlines, you think Austin is huge, but Austin is probably two (laughs) two to three million people in Austin versus seven to eight million in Dallas and seven to eight million in Houston. And so in 2020, in terms of multifamily transaction, Dallas was the number one market in the nation. They had $10 billion in multifamily transactions last year. Um, you know, Austin and San Antonio was about 3 billion. Um, Austin was about 3 billion. San Antonio was about 2 billion. Um, so I would say Austin is probably the most expensive market in Texas for sure. Um, and the number one thing driving Austin is tech. And that is, I mean, that's going to go great until at some point there's going to be a pullback in tech. And so that is probably the only thing that is not baked in to Austin, um, the cap rates in Austin are probably 50 basis points lower than Dallas, right? So if in Dallas, you're probably have four to 475, 5% cap rates right now from ABC. Um, Austin, you're probably 50 basis points lower. So you're probably 350 to 425, four and a half on cap rates. Um, San Antonio is probably opposite. It's probably 50 basis points the other way compared to Dallas. Um, you're probably four and a half to five and a half percent. I would say San Antonio is a smaller market um, of all four of them, right? So San Antonio is going to be a smaller market than than all four of the the other majors. And then Houston, I would say Houston is still dependent on oil as much as anybody wants to say. You know, there's the Texas Medical Center, but outside of that, I mean, if you drive along I-10, I grew up I-10 and Beltway Eight um, in sort of West Houston. I mean, all those buildings are, you know, energy, energy buildings. And those were all the, the top, uh, you know, white collar professionals live and work and class A deals in Houston, the rents have gone straight down for the last two or three years. And so Houston's having a little bit more trouble, I would say than any other market, um, probably in Texas right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When I started like 2015, I remember Houston being like, well, like what Dallas is right now, the top market for the, you know. Five years before that, right? It was always number one in the nation, and I know. I think I'm not sure what happened to Dal, uh, to Houston. Maybe because of you know hurricanes and oil hurricane prices. and oil. oil. Yeah. yeah, I know these two things made it, made it a bit become made it a bit less popular, right? So, so in terms of financing, I know Houston used to be a pre-review market for Fannie and Freddie. Are they still a pre-review
2: market for Fannie? For awesome. Fannie, yes. Um, so what we've done, we've done a lot more Freddie. Uh, mm-hmm. Freddie SBL, which is under seven and a half million or under six million, really in Houston, and then um, Freddie Conventional has been um, been fine. They usually just want a higher debt service. So you might be instead of seventy five, one twenty five on the debt service, it's usually seventy five percent levered, and then one thirty debt service um, in Houston.
1: Interesting. Okay, got it. So um, yeah, they still have some limitations on on Houston, but I think. I don't know. It sometimes can be, you know, looked at as opportunity, right? Because people are, you know, slightly not doing a lot of deals over there compared to, you know, other markets. I guess. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's probably if you say, let's say, a B deal in uh, DFW right now is 125 a unit. Just say on average, then in Houston you're probably 100 a unit. So you're probably 25,000 a door cheaper. Uh, you're getting a higher cap rate there. I would just make sure instead of 500 dollars a unit and in insurance, you're probably eight nine hundred per unit in insurance in Houston. Got it, got it.
1: So let's go and talk about different loan products because you you, you you would be able to give a lot of insight, right? You have CMBS, you have bridge loans, you have Fannie, Freddie, and you have HUD loans and you have conventional bank, right? So you have like six different loans if I, if I did my math correctly, right? So right. why not you look at the pro and cons of each one of that so that at least you know we can give some really good education for our, for our audience here. Y-
2: yeah, let's, let's start with where most people start, um, recourse bank loan, right? So this is going to be a five-year, uh, maybe one-year interest only, 20 to 25-year AM, and this can going to be recourse to you, right? So you are going to sign personally. Most of these loans are $1 to $5 million in that range. Uh, most people only sign them on their first loan and only if uh, you can't get Fannie and Freddie. So if your occupancy is 70% or 80%, you can't get Fannie and Freddie, you use a recourse bank loan on deals under 5 million. Um, if as deals get more stabilized, you get more experience. Most people are moving to Fannie and Freddie. So Fannie and Freddie are going to be 5, 7, 10 year terms, non-recourse, 30 year amortization. You can get anywhere from one to five years interest only. Rates on Fannie and Freddie right now are probably 325 to 375, just depending on your prepayment structure. Um, and that, that is, I mean, that is the market. I would say in 2020, it was the market. Probably 70 to 80% of the loans done on the multifamily side were Fannie and Freddie. And so you had to understand that market. And that's, that's what we did a lot of. If a deal doesn't qualify Fannie and Freddie, you could go non-recourse bridge. So this is what I did at GE Capital. Uh, a lot of non-recourse bridge loans are seventy-five to eighty percent loan to cost. So if a deal just isn't sizing well on Fannie and Freddie, you could do a non-recourse bridge. This is going to be three-year, three to five years um, IO the whole term. You're probably four twenty-five to four and a half percent, but you get a one percent prepay, which is a huge advantage, and you get more leverage. And then CMBS, I would say, is for your stabilized product that just is not. Um, they want a non-recourse loan, but there's been some issue that Fannie and Freddie can't get over. So it could be in a pre-reviewed market like we talked about, or it could be um, there was recent crime on the property um, or the guarantor just doesn't qualify Fannie and Freddie. So they had recent bankruptcies or things like that. Then you could take it CMBS. CMBS is going to be 10 year. They could probably do up to three years interest only and um, up to 75% leverage. And their rates are probably a little bit more than Fannie or Freddie, but not much. So they're probably still in the 4% range on CMBS. And then HUD, HUD is really used. We've seen it used. We just did a deal in Austin on a 221 D4 HUD loan. So that's on, it's a non-recourse construction product. Um, you, you can get up to 85% loan to cost on it. And it's for areas where there's not a lot of new construction. <laughs> so uh, they, if they, they do sort of like a demand study, a market survey, and figure out what areas you could build it in. And then you can do that construction product. And they also have a, um, a refinance product, but HUD loans take um, anywhere from six to nine months to do. So you better, most people are doing it either on construction or refinances, not on acquisition. So acquisitions, I mean, just your recourse bank loan or Fannie or Freddie. oh you're on mute
1: oh okay so it's good that i mean we have different different products that anybody can use right uh, i want to go a bit more into the market cycle of this product but before that i want to go to the bridge loan right so the bridge loan usually they have give you like three years loan product and there's one plus one extension if i'm not mistaken, that's the most common product right so so is the i mean i never done a, a true bridge loan i've done a, a bank loan i've done and freddy and all that right so Uh, I never done a CMBS, right? And um, on the bridge, so the the additional one plus one, is that based on the lender's approval? Uh, You get it? Okay, it's not like automatically you get it, right? So,
2: yeah, so they usually put some hurdles around it. So it might be um, a debt service coverage hurdle. So it might be like a 125 or 135 debt service coverage hurdle, or it might even be what's called a debt yield is a NOI divided by your loan amount. So it might be like a seven or eight percent debt yield hurdle, um, depending on the lender, and they typically charge, let's say, twenty-five basis points or fifty basis points um, for each extension. And so, ideally, if, if you're doing a bridge loan in year two, you're starting to look at, all right, how am I going to refinance this to Fannie and Freddie, or how am I going to sell this deal? Um, you don't want to come up against that maturity.
1: Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Sometimes I, I, I mean. Yeah, I mean, it's it's we have to go into the detail on what are the extensions of that bridge loan, right? So so let's talk about different market cycle and different loan products, right? So so like before 2020, before COVID, uh, what kind of loan product would you advise? And you know what, like right now, what are the loan product that would you advise? Uh, I know it depends on the deal and all that, but in a, in, at a very high level, can you? describe your expertise you know for an active uh, sponsor or active investor you know, how would they choose which loan product to use yeah I mean
2: 2015 2016 every almost everybody sort of on the BNC side was using just Fannie Mae fixed rate and that's you were getting 75 to 80 percent um, loan to cost and it was it was a great product you were probably four percent interest rate four and a half percent interest rate um, 2018 2019 what happened was um, Fannie Mae was 70% or 65%. So more people started using bridge loans in 2018, 2019, 2020 hit, all the bridge loans went away. So post COVID, all the lenders went away. All that was left was Fannie and Freddie. And at the end of 2020, what really changed was Freddie started being more competitive in the probably BC space. So class B, class C space and a lot of people started using Freddie floating rate debt. And what that gave you was a 10 year loan term instead of five years, which is what you get on most bridge loans. It gave you a 10 year loan term and then it gave you a 1% prepay after 12 months. And so they did a ton of business in Q3 and Q4, um, but they started becoming a lot more restrictive um, starting this year. So I think a lot of BNC syndicators will probably start going back to Fannie Mae Um, The question is whether they want to do fixed rate, or they want to do floating rate, or even potentially um, a lower prepayment penalty. So we're starting to quote Fannie Mae, with not just your standard yield maintenance, uh, we're doing maybe shorter yield maintenance or even step down prepayment penalties, uh, because people are getting stuck with yield maintenance penalties from 2017, 18, 19.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's including me too. I mean, we are stuck with prepayment penalty right? because I was thinking the interest is going to go up, but it went down, right? Which means our right. penalty become bigger <laughs> right now, right? Yeah, so, very tricky. Um, which is, you know, which is a counter a counterproductive from where we want it to be in terms of our business plan. But um, so where do you think we are going to go from here in terms of the lending, um, lending environment? Because right now, Fannie and Freddie has this
2: reserve requirement.
1: Right, uh, primarily due yeah. to COVID, and they're still not out of the woods on that. Where, where are we going to go with that?
2: Yeah, I mean, Fannie and Freddie are still a huge portion of the market. They really want to be like fifty percent of the market. They're probably seventy-five percent of the market right now, and so everybody's still coming to them because the interest rate is three and a quarter, three and a half, which is great, fixed for ten years, or even their floating rate product starts at three twenty-five. So that's just phenomenal, and you're getting four years of IO or five years of IO. And so people are just all over that and it's not recourse. Um, And then you're, you get the certainty that Fannie and Freddie aren't going anywhere. Right. So if they were, if Fannie and Freddie were closing loans during uh, COVID right after during lockdown, then, you know, for the next year, they'll be here. And so a lot of people are counting on them to be in the market. And, you know, as a syndicator, when you have 250 or 500,000 day one, hard uh you want to make sure your loan funds right so um you know i think the COVID reserves will slowly start coming off they used to be um uh, pni with taxes with insurance with replacement reserves which was about 10 percent of the loan um right now that it's about it's just pni so it's five percent of the loan approximately and i think they're going to start scaling that back down to maybe six months and then eventually i take it off uh, but until um you know, other lenders come into the market and are more competitive, they can just leave them on because from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's perspective, these are the best loans they've done because not only are they sizing the same way on debt service, risk, right? Because they're looking at in-place income, but they're having you put up six, nine, 12 months of p and And so they've got an extra cushion there uh, to make their loans even safer.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think, I think, I don't know. I think once the reserve prices uh, has been, I mean, reserve requirement has been taken off, I think there's going to be a lot more movement in terms of transaction, right? Because, you know, the numbers would be much better, right? So do you think the, I mean, right now with COVID, um, I mean, multifamily prices really didn't come down. In fact, it went up more, right? Because of the lower interest rates. Uh, But selling right now a deal with a, with a, you know where you can sell right now versus selling it after the reserve requirement is over and vaccines are, you know, everything's over with COVID, right? So, what would you propose right now? I mean, for an active uh, investor, I mean, selling right now where interest rate is still low, I do not know where the interest is going to be in the next few years. I think it's going to be the same for next two three years. That's what the Fed has been telling us, right? I mean, selling right now versus selling, you know, one year down the road where everything is you know back to normal in terms of the lending. Liquidity.
2: my my opinion and so i've invested in 28 deals and 10 have sold in the last three years three and years? as three soon years as months? yeah last three years okay. not <laughs> three months yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot so a lot sold in 19 and 20 right okay okay got it and the the reason that they they sold was they had not held the deal for five years as projected but they could they could hit their return when they sold even though they had a prepayment penalty, even though it was year three and not year five. And so if you can hit that price and that return back to your investors, because in reality as a general partner, your biggest payday is when you sell your property, mm-hmm. right? And almost every syndicator are, that raises money, they're gonna ask, all right, show me your full cycle deals. How many deal, because not until you sell the deal is that a sort of realized return, right? So everything's unrealized until you actually sell the deal. So that that I think is important. So if you're trying to build a track record, if you can hit your number now, uh, because I've seen where syndicators, uh, you know, they've taken a bridge loan or they passed on an offer, and then all of a sudden a building catches on fire or a hurricane hits, or you know anything can happen at these properties. And all of a sudden now you thought you were going to hold the deal and sell it this year, but now, uh, you know, 10 units are down. So now you gotta bring those back up or the hurricane hits, you know, anything can happen. And so if you can hit your business plan, execute it, sell the deal, um, you've held the deal for two or three years and return all the money to the LPs. I think that's a great plan as a syndicator, as an individual owner, I think that's where it becomes a little bit different is when you start thinking about, all right, am I gonna hold this property long-term? Then, uh, and it's going well, I've done all the work, I've acquired it, now it's just making sure you have enough capital because that is usually the next reason why syndicators need to sell a deal is they came in, did the plan, they used all their CapEx dollars, now they're sitting in year four, year five, they don't have any money, right? They might have 100, 200,000 in working capital, but it's not enough to do the roof. It's not enough to do 50% of the unit's interior upgrades, right? So they have to go and sell the deal.
1: Yeah, yeah. CapEx is very key, right? Because uh, sometimes you burn through too quick or you underestimated your CapEx and you'd rather just sell it and claim the victory saying that, we did a good turnaround rather than saying that now we want to continue and we don't have CapEx, right? Which
2: is not- that Yeah, bad. we're doing a capital call. <laughs> correct. Limited partners are looking at you like you're crazy.
1: <laughs> correct, correct. Where do you think, I mean, I'm sure you're looking at a lot of deals nowadays, right? For the past you know, uh, nine months or 12 months uh, during COVID. I mean, we're already like 11 months right now, right? So where do you think is the biggest opportunity for investors, for active investors to make an impact right now? What kind of deal, I mean, what kind of deal is mean, that? That's a I really still, good deal. I should have done that.
2: I still like um, probably the A minus B plus space. Um, so a lot of B and C deals have been upgraded. They've you know raised rents from nine hundred dollars to a thousand or eleven $1, hundred dollars. Um, the space between the new construction, so new construction, let's say in DFW, the rents are fifteen hundred to two thousand, right? I don't want to be in that space really. Uh, because there's 20,000, 30,000 units coming online. And as soon as the new one comes in, everyone moves to that one because they're given two months free, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly fighting those new construction guys. And so it's hard to push my rent above $1,500 a unit. But if I'm an A minus deal, B plus deal, and my rents are 11 $1, or $1,200, and I can push to 13 or 1400, I feel a lot better um, with that play and a lot of those deals, the deals built in the nineties or early two thousands, those haven't been touched. So they've sat there for 20 years, interiors are white appliances, white cabinets, carpet. And the amenity set is probably a little weak and it's garden style three-story walk-up and I can park you know, in front of my unit and walk up and I don't have to get an elevator. I like all of that. Um, in dfw and austin i like i like that play um and most of those deals have not been touched
1: got it also what you're saying is b and c a lot of it's already been done right now but people forgot about the a minus product
2: it's not they <laughs> forgot it's just it, it 5 10 years ago it was brand new brand right new. <laughs> but now it's now it's older right, right, right and right, so yeah. there's so much new supply that's come on mm-hmm. that the new supply is you know, structured parking with a wrap, four-story wrap, and it's, you know, $2,000 a unit or $2,000 a month in rent. And a lot of people are like, I don't want to pay $2,000 a month. And so I'll, I'd i rather rent a $1,200 or $1,300 class A- minus deal in the suburbs and, you know, I can walk up to my unit. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, that's good. What about on the, um, on the different loan types, right? Like there's a loan assumption, there's new loans, and there's, you know, like, you know, other I mean,
2: I, I would, I mean, if you can do a new loan um, on a deal and you can do a Freddy Floater, Freddie Floater is by far the best product right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're going to be more conservative on their taxes, they're going to be more conservative on their leverage. But if you can get, like, I mean, in the fourth quarter of last year, we were doing like loans with 10 year term, five years IO, you know, 260, 270 over SOFER. SOFR is like 10 basis points. And to me, that was a home run. Um, you know, This this year, it'll probably be 300 basis points, 325 over SOFR. Uh, but you have a 12-month lockout and 1% prepay. So if anybody comes to you in year two, three, four, you could sell and you have a 1% prepay and you're out. But then it gives you also the, you don't have a loan maturity in year three. You have a loan maturity in year 10. And so you can just sit there and you buy an interest rate cap And that, that is um, a phenomenal product, but they're going to be stricter. Freddie's going to be stricter on the quality of the asset and quality of their sponsorship this year. And so they're going to, you're going to have, I mean, someone like yourself, you're going to have enough experience, but someone who's done maybe one or two deals, it's going to be tougher for them to qualify for a Freddie loan this year.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I love the Freddie Floater nowadays, right? That's really the 1% prepay is a really. I just wondered why we were not introduced to that loan product
2: <laughs> during the normal time, right? So. Yeah, so if you go back to 16, 17, 18, mm-hmm. um, everyone thought interest rates were going to go up, mm-hmm. right? And so um, if you did the Freddie Floater, then you had to buy an interest rate cap. You had to buy a cap, yeah. So that interest rate cap might have cost you $500,000 at close. Okay, got it, got it. So do you want to bring $500,000 to close? Or uh, right now, because everyone's thinking that interest rates are going to be flat, the interest rate caps are like Mm 50,000. So people can stomach 50,000 at close, but most people, especially on like an 8 million or $9 million deal, you got to bring 500,000 or 400,000 to close. It was just too heavy. Okay,
1: Um, Okay. so the cap is a fixed amount, I guess, like 500,000 regardless of the deal.
2: Well, no, it's, it's it, they look at what do you want to cap it at, mm. right? So if SOFR right now is 10 basis points and you want to cap SOFR at 1%, it's going to be 50,000, right? If you want to cap it at 2%, it might be 40,000, right? Whereas pre-COVID, let's say 2017, 18, 19, um, if they think interest rates are going to go straight up, like that was the forward curve, then if you want a 1% cap, it's going to cost you a lot of money because as soon as it goes past one percent they have to pay you and so not many people wanted to take that trade got
1: it got it yeah it's it's always i mean i i, I realized the the cap is what makes the difference because now this is is pretty cheap to buy the cap right the maximum right. interest rate cap compared to last time when people really probably didn't even were introduced to that concept um yeah i mean very interesting so as an LP, I mean, I mean, let's go into like more into passive investors, right? What do you think is important of of uh, sponsors financing for the LP? What are the things that the LP should be looking for when they are going to invest in a deal? Uh, yeah, on sponsors mean, uh, financing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to to understand what it is. Number one, so is it Fannie? Is it Freddie? Is it Bridge? Um, because you're gonna have to understand the exit right? So if let's say it's a Fannie or Freddie loan and um, the exit is in year five, which is what 99% of sponsors p- project. And um, if you project a five-year exit and you have a 10-year loan, then what's the prepay in year five? And are you accounting for it? So that that's what I would say is number one. Most sponsors that I see, they do Fannie and Freddie, right? Um, if your sponsor is doing a bridge loan and in year three, what's the exit, right? Do you have a clear path to a refinance or sell? And if you do not, then my equity is at risk as a limited partner if you do a bridge loan. Um, And most bridge loans uh, on syndications are non-recourse bridge loans. So that person does not have any of their personal money at risk um, to make up for that loan versus a recourse bank loan you would. So that's what I would understand is is it Fannie Freddie what's the term and then um, what's the exit? If is it you know 1% prepay is it yield maintenance is it step down? So how do I get out of the loan? Got it got it got it.
1: So let's go into your personal uh, side of things right uh, you know um, I mean you have you, you do a lot of loan underwriting. You do loan origination. Do you look just look? At, I think you do as an LP as well. You invested in twenty eight deals, right? Are you looking yourself one day to be an active investor?
2: Uh, uh, right now, no. I mean, I so I I work. What's nice is you know I see a lot of transactions, and so um, I've invested in a lot of transactions. And so every month, you know, we're recording this in the middle of the month. The you know I get essentially 20 reports monthly reports from all over dfw from austin and from san antonio and so that makes what i like about that is that i can become a better investor um every month compared to when i invested in the stock market i you know i I bought the same s p 500 index fund for 10 years right I, i never became a better investor and so i think the combination of um most people, they're going to probably at least start as an LP and then make their way to becoming a general partner. But for me, um, I've stayed on the limited partnership side because um, for me to do loans, that takes enough of my time. So um, <laughs> if I'm going to have any life outside of multifamily, I can't be a GP, I can't be a loan originator. Um, I can. The nice thing is if I went from 20 LP deals to 50 LP deals to 100 LP deals, it wouldn't matter because it would be the exact same amount of time zero for me um, to do. So that's that's where I've chosen to spend my time is loan originations working with general partners and then LP deals as an investor.
1: Got it, got it. So where do you see yourself growing from here? I mean, I know you said talk but I can keep on doing LP, right? But where do you see yourself progressing yeah, in the I mean, career or in in a, you know, yeah, so
2: I mean, um, so the last five or six years I've been focused more on sort of originating loans um, for for myself and for for old capital. And um, you know, the past year I've been sort of um, tagged me and Paul to sort of figure out how to grow old capital. From um, we do about a billion dollars a year in loans to um, two to three billion. So really just doubling over the next two to three years. And so um, we've actually just hired people in um, atlanta we're looking at adding some people in phoenix and florida and then potentially in the other markets here in uh, texas so we have people um, in austin and houston right now Uh, we'll probably add someone in san antonio Um, but we have a good group here in dallas but in the major texas markets we'll probably be adding some folks there and really growing um, because i think the number of transactions that are gonna happen in Texas is only gonna to continue to grow and just really expanding sort of the whole O Capital brand and name across um, multiple cities, um, I think is sort of the next step. And so um, that's, that's sort of my next uh, three to five years.
1: Got it, got it. So let's look at some of the, I mean, among all the transactions you have done, among all the loans that you have done, is there any particular one particular loan or some help that you did to a sponsor or syndicator that you're really, really proud of that, you know, it, it's I mean, always in your mind. This, you're really proud of that. You, I really helped this guy or this person or this group out. And I, I'm just happy because I helped them do,
2: you know, you can go into
1: details, but every, you don't have to go to
2: details. Every single deal, <laughs> okay. um, I, I feel like is so unique. And I mean, there there's deals that, Essentially, you know, people call me after the deal's blown up, right? So they they they've been working with another lender. Um, they've gone down the road for thirty days or forty five days, and they haven't gotten anywhere. And they call me and say, "Look, I mean, this happened at the end of two thousand twenty. They said another mortgage broker was working on this deal for three weeks, four weeks, got nowhere. I don't have one quote from anybody, and." They told me about the deal over the phone in, you know, 10 minutes. And then the next day I had a loan quote for them. um, And that person closed at the end of January of 2021. And a lot of times it's really just knowing the market and, you know, all the inputs of what is going into the deal, who the borrower is, who the sponsor is and hearing that story and figuring out the right place to put that. And so a lot of people in this business, they do, office loans or retail loans and self-storage loans. Like we almost exclusively focus on multifamily. So if you bring me a multifamily deal that has an issue, we can figure it out. And so a lot of times uh, we are the problem solver um, at the very beginning. And what happens is those people become clients sort of forever after you solve their problem once. Because if they, if they can't get that, that loan closed, they're probably not doing a deal with that listing broker again. And so there's a ton of pressure. They have a ton of hard money. And so that's, that's just one example. Um, There's been other examples where, you know, I've probably closed, I don't know, 150 loans over the last four or five years. And so we see a lot of settlement statements. We see a lot of issues with, let's say title um, insurance, all those things that are sort of ancillary to a transaction And a lot of times we can bring up other transactions and say, look, you know, this title company did it this way, or this insurance company did it this way, or this guy looked at the flood zone this way. And we have those connections. And so I think a lot of times people think, all right, well, you're just helping me with the loan and that's all you can do. So just give me the lowest interest rate. And I'm like, I got that, you know, I can do that. But then all the other ancillary pieces are where I think we add a ton of value. Got it. Got it.
1: Got it. Awesome. So James, why don't you tell our audience how to get hold of you and um, any website reference, uh, you know, any, uh, you know, links that you want to give out so that people can connect to you.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, the company's website is oldcapitallending.com. You can go on to YouTube. So just search James Ng, YouTube, uh, multifamily financing. There'll be, I don't know, I've probably done a hundred videos since post-COVID on YouTube. So that's probably the second place. And then um, I'll just give my email. It's uh, jeng at oldcapitallending.com. And my my phone number is 214-300-5035. Happy to talk with anybody about um, financing, investing, uh, multifamily, anywhere in the nation.
1: Awesome. Is that your cell phone or your office number?
2: Yeah, that'll go to myself. So you can text me there.
1: <laughs> all right, guys, all can, or girls, you all can call him directly. So <laughs> thanks for coming on. Uh, I think we went pretty deep into a lot of, uh, you know, uh, financing aspect of multifamily and and you're right. You want to focus on one asset class because there's so much of details in that asset class. You need to be specialized, right? And I've seen, you know, sometimes I get attracted to you know, shiny objects. So why not I do self-storage Why not? I do mobile home parks, but you know, it's very important to focus because uh, you know once you focus on it you become really really expert on it and you can grow pretty quickly you know so thank you for coming Absolutely. to the show
0: That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free along with other valuable resources by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for multifamily investors group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.